Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah had borne him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said that, that to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on that day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be the heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son, but God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy, because of the of your sorry, because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. She departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave, it, gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. His mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my prosperity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abraham's servants had, Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me I had not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, the place was called Beersheba, 
because they're both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a, a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray again together. Everlasting God, you are the God of Abraham. You are the God of Isaac and of all the spiritual seed of Abraham. Lord, we are here this morning, adopted into the promised line, adopted as your sons and daughters. For, Lord, you are faithful to your promises. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see and to understand afresh and more deeply who you are this morning as the faithful, promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. And, Lord, we pray that as we consider who you are, Lord, we pray with, with bold confidence, Lord, that you will change us into the image of Christ gradually, day by day, step by step, through the power of your Holy Spirit, bringing us into conformity with your word. For, Lord, we know that you always do what you say you will do. Amen. In the desert, water is life. In early 1917, at the height of World War I, British forces considered a new strategy. They had been catastrophically repelled at Gallipoli, but they realized the strategic location of Israel. By recapturing the strategic land of Israel, the land that had been in Muslim hands for almost 800 years since the defeat of the Crusaders, by Saladin in 1187, they could gain access, a back door, if you will, into Europe. And after months of failed attempts to take Gaza with much loss of life and no gain of ground, the British shifted tactics. They turned their attention inland to Beersheba and its wells in order to capture the water supply, crucial to victory in the region. The location was heavily defended by German and Turkish soldiers and troops from Britain and Australia and New Zealand set out from Shalal, Egypt with three days supplies under cover of darkness, traveling by night and seeking cover during the day. The principal feature of this battle group was the cavalry, notably the Australian light horsemen. They reached Beersheba on October 31st, 1917, 101 years ago. They had the element of surprise, and by early afternoon, they had achieved most of their objectives. However, the Tel Al Saba, the original site of the city of Beersheba, was still in Turkish control. An Australian 
New Zealand Army Corps with Anzac soldiers managed to take the hill, but the, sil the city was still heavily fortified with trenches full of soldiers and machine gun emplacements and the infamous Turkish artillery batteries. It was imperative that they take the city by nightfall, so General Harry Chauvel, the commander of the Desert Mounted Corps, came up with a daring plan. With only one hour of daylight left, he commanded the 4th and 12th Anzac Light Horse Regiments to line up and charge the Turkish lines. They'd never been trained for this type of charge and they'd never attempted anything like it before. The 800 horsemen set out to cross six kilometers of open ground directly towards the Turkish forces. They set out at a trot and then went into a canter and finally into a galloping charge. Bayonets in hand, yelling as they flew across the no man's land with bullets zipping through the air and German planes dropping bombs from above. Now, normal tactics involved dismounting, but this time they didn't. As they approached, they kept on coming at a full gallop. In the words of Ian Idriessa from the 5th Light Horse Brigade, at a mile distant, their thousand hooves were stuttering thunder, coming at a rate that frightened a man. They were an awe-inspiring sight, galloping through the red haze, knee to knee and horse to horse, the dying sun glinting on the bayonet points. Machine gun and rifle fire roared, but the 4th Brigade galloped on. We heard shouts among the, the thundering hooves, saw balls of flame among the horses. Horse after horse crashed, but the massed squadrons thundered on. By the time the Turkish artillery gunners realized that the horsemen weren't going to stop, it was too late for them to adjust their aim, and the artillery shells, shells rained down behind them, behind the charging cavalry. As they reached the Turkish trenches, trenches, many riders simply jumped the trenches, some continuing into town, others dismounting and engaging the bewildered Turks in hand-to-hand -hand combat. They'd taken the city but had not yet accomplished their final objective, securing the wells of Beersheba. The Germans had placed mines in the wells in case they were overrun in order to present, prevent the British from gaining access to the precious water supplies. Anzac horseman Scotty Bolton looked through the window as he rode past and discovered a German soldier at a switchboard wired to detonate all the town's important buildings and wells. He and his mate were able to capture the officer. The water was saved. This battle marked the last successful cavalry charge in, on battlefront. In less than an hour, the Anzac troops had taken Beersheba and had secured its wells. And in the battle, only 30 horsemen were killed. Another 36 wounded. The Turks, however, lost more than 500 men and another 1,500 surrendered. This miraculous victory was the turning point and the campaign and the first in a series of victories that led to the capture of Jerusalem and the retreat of Turkish forces out of Israel. Now, these are excerpts of, of historical accounts, especially a website called the Anzac Call. There, there's a movie that was made about it called The Light Horseman. But this victory had far more wide-reaching importance than even World War I. Because on the day of that victory in Beersheba, the War Cabinet in London announced the Balfour Declaration, establishing Israel as a national home for the Jewish people. 
And although it would be another 30 years before the state of Israel was officially reestablished, the foundation was laid on October 31st, 1917. No matter, what, no matter what your eschatological position is, you have to admit that God was behind that decisive victory. And I know most uh, of Israel does not live at present as the people of God. That entrance into the covenant community is not on the basis of your genes, but of God's grace. However, I believe that here it's clear that God's hand was preserving the Jewish state. I believe that God was and is keeping his promises. Genesis 21, our passage this morning, takes place around that very spot, around Beersheba. And here too, we see God keeping his promises. Here we see the long-awaited birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. Yet hot on the heels of this joyous celebration, conflict arises. In this passage, there are three crises, two of which center around a well. And through it all, we see the Lord's protection and provision for his promised seed. In this passage, we'll see how those inside and those outside the covenant respond to the fulfillment of God's promise. We'll also see how God treats someone outside the covenant and how Abraham treats someone outside the covenant. In verses 1 to 7, we'll see the birth of Isaac, God's promise of a son under the covenant. The birth of Isaac, God's promise of a son under the the covenant. In verses 8 to 21, we'll see the expulsion of Ishmael, God's promise to the son outside the covenant. God's promise of a son outside the covenant. And then in verses 22 to 34, we'll see the treaty with Abimelech, Abraham's promise to a foreigner in a human covenant. Abraham's promise to a foreigner in a human covenant. So first of all, the, the birth of Isaac, God's promise of a son in the covenant, verses 1 to 7. As we begin chapter 21, we, we finally witness the birth of a son to Abraham and Sarah. The Lord has done just what he said he would do, just as he always does. Again and again in chapters 12 and 13 and 15 and 17 and 18, God had promised Abraham an offspring. Now, 25 years later, the moment has come. Now, in December, Jane and I are expecting, Lord willing, our third. Now, now nine months seems like a very long time to wait. But nine months is not 25 years. And during that time, we, we saw Abraham's, Abraham's faith stretched, and we saw Abraham's faith waver, didn't we, as, as Abraham tried to take matters into his own hands. And we'll see this morning some of the fruit of Abraham's faithlessness. But notice the repetition in, the, in these first few verses. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did as he had promised at the time of which God had spoken to him. The Lord had done what he had said he was going to do at the time he said he was going to do it. When the Lord says something, it's a promise. You can guarantee it. 
In verses 3 to 5, we see Abraham's obedient response. Where Abraham's laughter of doubt from chapter 17, verse 17, is replaced by obedient faith. As he names his son Isaac as the Lord had commanded him in 1719. And Isaac, remember, means he laughs. He laughs. Isaac's name is repeated three times in these verses. And then Abraham obeys the covenant by circumcising Isaac when he's eight days old. Again, as the Lord had commanded him. The Lord was faithful to provide a son, and Abraham was faithful to obey the Lord's command. Now we're told that Abraham was 100 years old when he fathered Isaac. Now, I know it's not polite to reveal a woman's age, but I'm going to say it anyway. Sarah was 90 at the time. Now, it does seem odd that this passage doesn't mention her age, especially since it's, it's more of a miracle for a 90-year-old barren woman to mother a child than for a 100-year-old man to father one. But as is so often the case in the scriptures, the birth of key figures is out of the ordinary. Whether it's stemming from infertility or even virginity. In verses 6 and 7, the focus shifts to Sarah. She is depicted as being full of joy. Isaac's name is now given new significance. Again, laughter is central. Like Abraham, Sarah had laughed in, when in shock over the announcement that she would bear a son. But, but gone is the negative connotation of her laughter. She says, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. The, the focus is no more on Abraham and Sarah laughing at the announcement, but, on, uh, but of joy, their joy at the Lord's faithfulness. I wonder, what fills you with joy? What are the types of things that, that bring joy in your life? Well, I know beyond doubt that the greatest moment of joy that I ever experienced in my life was when I was first saved. And, and the, the day that I was released from that psychiatric hospital, I remember like it was yesterday, rolling in the grass with joy. With joy over the fact that the burden of my sin and guilt was, was gone. Now, I still get glimpses of that overwhelming joy as I reflect on all that God has done for me in Christ but not like on that day 26 years ago when he first saved me, when I first experienced God's grace. Now, I want to feel that joy on, on a more regular basis, not simply because I enjoy the feeling, but, and, and I do enjoy it, but, but because God is glorified as I rejoice in him. Do you rejoice over your salvation? Do, do you rejoice in God's promises to you. You see, Abraham and Sarah didn't, didn't just, just rejoice at the birth of a son. That was a glorious celebration. But they rejoiced over the fact that God had given them a son. That God had given them a son. Think about it for a second. If, if, somebody, if somebody you don't like, somebody you don't hold in, in much esteem, it gives you an exorbitant present, well, you're going to be wondering what their motive is. And you're going to be thinking about, about giving it back to them or, or thinking about, about returning it and, and giving and getting some, some money back for it. 
But when you esteem the person who is giving you the gift, the gift is of that much greater value. So as much as a celebration it was that, that they had received a son, after all that time, at, at 100 years old, at 90 years old, they had finally received a, a son. But their, their rejoicing was over the fact that this gift had come to them from Almighty God. God kept his promises to Abraham, and Abraham was obedient. But things quickly take a dark turn as conflict arises. So let's look at verses 18 to 21, where we, we see the expulsion of Ishmael, God's promise to the son outside of the covenant. So it's now two to three years later, at the time when, when the child was weaned in that culture, Abraham makes a great feast to celebrate Isaac's weaning. And enter the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. I want you to notice that through this whole chapter, his name isn't mentioned once. Not by Sarah, not by the narrator, not by God, not, by, not even by his own mother. Sarah saw the son that Hagar had borne to Abraham laughing. So again, we see the theme of laughter, but the context shows that this is no laugh of joy. In the last section, the, the laughter was a laughter of, of thanksgiving and, and wonder at God's miraculous gift of the promised son. But again, the context shows that this is not that kind of laughter. And even though the same word is used, it's, it's, that word is also used to describe the reaction of Lot's sons-in-law at the rejection of his warning about the destruction of Sodom. It's also used by Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39, 14 and 17 in her accusation against Joseph that Joseph was mocking them. And Paul describes this treatment of Isaac as persecution in Galatians 4.29. Let's remember what, what this birth of Isaac meant for the older brother. He, he was 13 years old and old enough to understand what the birth of Isaac meant. Isaac had replaced him as the heir. Muslims, the, the descendants of Ishmael, to this day believe that, that Ishmael was the rightful heir. This laughter was rebellion against God's plan. Sarah realizes the threat that this son is to Isaac and tells Abraham to send the boy away. It's understandable that, sh that she's concerned. He was a threat to Isaac. If he had remained in the camp, it, it would be very likely that it wouldn't just be Isaac's inheritance that was in danger, but Isaac's own person that would be in danger. Remember God's prophecy concerning the son of Hagar from Genesis 16, 12. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Here we're beginning to see the, the, the fulfillment of that prophecy in, in his attitude towards Isaac. And in a statement that makes you wonder whether the animosity between Sarah and Hagar from Genesis 16 has ever really been resolved, Sarah says in verse 10, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman will not be the heir with my son Isaac. Now this word cast out is also used to describe the expulsion of Adam from the garden, of Moses from before Pharaoh, 
and the Canaanites from the promised land. Consider the irony. Here, an Egyptian is being banished from the Hebrews. Where in Exodus, we'll see the Hebrews banished from among the Egyptians. And I wonder if, as we pause just for a moment, as we think about the, the threat that, that was being made on Isaac, do, do you recognize the threats to your inheritance? Do you recognize the things that jeopardize your eternal inheritance? You need to realize that the, the greatest threat to your inheritance is not the world. It's not the devil. It's you. We, we've seen that repeatedly with Abraham, not only in the incidents with, with, in Egypt and with Abimelech. The, the reason that Abraham even had another son was because of his lack of faith in, Abraham, in God's promises. He and Sarah got impatient. They didn't wait for the Lord, but took matters into their own hands. And so that son and the ensuing conflict was their fault. Friends, the greatest threat to your inheritance is not external, it's internal. Romans 8.13 For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Th those sins that you are playing with will kill you unless by God's grace you kill them first. They're a real and present danger. Remember John Owen's warning, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We need to be ruthless with our sin as Sarah was ruthless with Hagar and her son. And Abraham is upset. It's understandable. He is, he is the boy is Abraham's son and Abraham loved him. But God reassures him in verse 12. Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman, but do what Sarah says, because through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Again, notice that there is no mention of the half-brother's name. The Lord doesn't mention it here at all. Isaac is the legitimate heir born according to the promise. His half-brother born according to the flesh. Galatians 4.23, Isaac was part of the covenant, his half-brother was not. The Lord had been very clear in 17.19-21, I will establish my covenant with Isaac as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. But even still, the Lord reassures Abraham that he had a plan for his firstborn son. In verse 13, he, re he reiterates his promise that he had made back in chapter 16 and again in, in chapter 17 that he would make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So again, we see that God keeps his promises even to those who are outside the covenant. But notice why. It's because of Abraham, because this boy is Abraham's offspring. So again, we see Abraham obeying. He rises early in the morning, gives Hagar provisions of, of bread and water, and gives her the child and sends her away. Now, it's a softer one that, than the one that Sarah had used, but they're still being sent out into the wilderness. Next, we see Hagar and the boy wandering in the wilderness of Beersheba. 
This word wandering is the same one that Abraham had used in 2013 when he said that God had caused him to wander. It, meant, it means to, to stagger, to wander about, to go astray. It has a, a negative connotation. We're about to see just how negative because she is, is isolated with no home and no refuge. This is a harsh, semi-arid desert. And another crisis looms. The water runs out and death will soon follow unless there's intervention. Hagar puts the child in the shade of a bush in order to give him some shelter from the harsh desert sun and went about the distance of a bow shot away. She couldn't, she couldn't bear to witness the boy's death. She, she prayed, let me not look on the death of the child. She doesn't pray for the child's life, but she prays that she won't see his death. She sat down and lifted up her voice and wept. She was far enough away not to hear his cries, but someone else was listening. In verse 17, it happens again as it had in, in, chapter, in chapter 16, when, when Hagar had fled from Sarah into the wilderness, the Lord had intervened. But this time, it was the boy's cries, not hers, that God responded to. God heard the voice of the boy. In, in chapter 16, God had instructed her to call her son Ishmael, which means God hears because the Lord has listened to your affliction, 1611. And so again, the Lord hears and the Lord speaks to her. What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. And so the Lord tells Hagar to get up and to, to lift the boy up and to take him in her arms and repeats to her the promise, I will make him into a great nation. Friends, Ishmael is blessed as the son of Abraham, but the promise falls far short of those promises that are given to Isaac and his progeny. The line of promise who are the beneficiaries of an eternal relationship with God. The, the progeny of Isaac will inherit the land, and the progeny of Isaac will be a blessing for all nations. The, this blessing that is promised here to Ishmael is of limited duration. So here we see God's care. But God's care not just for the lad's, lad's future destiny, but also for his present needs. God now opened Hagar's eyes and revealed a well. This well had been there all along, but she had not seen it. And she gave the boy a drink. His life was spared. In the next chapter, we're, we're going to see Isaac threatened in the desert. But the Lord there opens Abraham's eyes to the deliverance. But here, we see that God was with Hagar's son. And he grew up. He grew up in the wilderness and he became an expert with the bow. The wilderness of Paran was his home. His mother found him an Egyptian wife. So here we see Ishmael moving further and further away from the covenant family, physically and spiritually. We don't see Ishmael again until the death of Abraham in chapter 25. Ishmael was outside the covenant, but God was faithful to keep his promises even to those outside the covenant. Finally, in verses 22 to 34, we see the treaty with Abimelech. 
Abraham's promise to a foreigner in a human covenant. In this section, again, a well is essential to well-being, pun intended. It begins with the conflict and ends with a guarantee of both peace and provision for Abraham's progeny. Both Abraham and Ishmael are presented in this chapter as vulnerable. Ishmael in the wilderness and Abraham in Philistine territory, but God is with them both, yet in different ways. So here Abimelech arrives. He's the king of the Philistines who figured prominently in chapter 20. But this time he's not alone. He's with Phicol, the commander of his army. Phicol's presence here indicates a threat of hostilities if their attempts at a peace treaty fail. Now the names Abimelech and Phicol are going to appear again in chapter 26, 60 years later, under parallel circumstances. Abimelech says to Abraham, God is with you. The same was, was just said of Ishmael, and the same will be said of Isaac in, in Genesis 36, or 26, 28, and, and Jacob in 30, 27, and Joseph in 39, 3. Abimelech knows firsthand that God is with Abraham because God had demonstrated it quite clearly to him in the last chapter. God had revealed that he was with Abraham both in word and in deed. God had revealed it to Abimelech in his confrontation at the abduction of Sarah into his harem. God had shut the wombs of the women in Abimelech's house. But God had also revealed that he was with Abraham by responding to Abraham's prayers just as he had said, and opening the wombs of the women in Abimelech's house. So Abimelech knew full well that God was with Abraham. Abimelech continues, Now therefore swear to me by God. Do you get the significance of this? Abraham is saying, or Abimelech rather, is saying that God is with you, so swear to me by God. As Victor Hamilton explains, that, that, that God is with Abraham does not mean that Abraham has a, a two-to-one majority over Abimelech. Rather, it means that, that others' expectations of him increase. Abraham was there as a representative of God. And Abimelech is calling him to be above reproach on the basis of his relationship with God. Well, what does Abimelech ask Abraham to swear? Swear to me that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. Now, we have to acknowledge that up until this point, Abraham certainly could not be characterized by honesty in his dealings with Abimelech or with Pharaoh before him. Abraham hadn't given Abimelech any reason to trust him. Friends, this should really be an oxymoron. God is with you. You didn't deal with me fairly or honestly. Those, those words just don't go together. Do you behave like a representative of God? Can people trust you to do what you say you're going to do? Is your word your bond? We've seen again and again, even in just this chapter, that, that God fulfills his promises, that God does what he says. Do you fulfill yours? Do you do what you were going to say you were going to do? 
Now, this is vitally important in the covenant community of the church, but it's arguably even more important in our relationships with those outside the church, with with unbelievers. The, The stakes are higher because as a Christian, you represent Christ to people who have little other witness in their lives. Do you consciously live as a representative of Christ in the world? You might be the only Christian these people will meet. Like John MacArthur says, you are the only Bible some unbelievers will ever read. You are the only Bible that some unbelievers will ever read. Does your behavior before others, perhaps especially before outsiders, commend the gospel or deny the gospel? Do you demonstrate integrity or hypocrisy? So having appealed to to Abraham's relationship with God, Abimelech now appeals to Abraham's relationship with him. Don't deal with me or with my posterity falsely, but deal with me as I have dealt with you kindly. He's appealing to Abraham to reciprocate the kindness that Abimelech had shown him. The word that's translated here, kindness, is is hesed. means faithfulness. It's loving kindness. This is covenant language. And Abraham responds, I will swear. He's going to make a, a binding oath with Abimelech, but before he does, there's something that needs to be dealt with. Before they they enter into this relationship, there's an outstanding issue that must be resolved. Verse 25, Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. Now, seizing a well might not seem like that big of a deal, but like we saw in the last section and in the introduction, having access to water is a life and death issue in that region. It's a recurring issue in the scriptures. So Abraham makes his claim on this well based on the fact that he had dug the well and that he was living there in this region at the invitation of Abimelech at the end of of chapter 20. Now, as we think about this and as we think about the the wrong that that was perceived, wrong that was done between Abimelech and and Abraham, we we see a lesson here for us that, that it's essential to deal with perceived wrongs and to deal with them biblically. We live with the ever-present danger of unforgiveness and bitterness. If somebody wrongs you, the first one that you should go to is God. And the second one that you should go to is the person who has offended you. Not your friends, not your wife, not your kids, not your pastor, but the person who did the wrong. If you go to somebody else about a wrong that that somebody has committed against you, there's a word for that in the scriptures. It's called gossip. No matter who you go to, whether it's a friend or a family, it is gossip. It is gossip. Gossip destroys relationships instead of building them up. Gossip destroys people rather than giving them an opportunity to repent. And, And if somebody comes to you with gossip, you have a responsibility to tell them, I am not going to listen to this. This is gossip. You need to go and deal with that before the person. And if they refuse, then say, I am actually going to have to talk to that person and tell them that you are gossiping about them. You do not want to enter into their sin. So if the person person comes to you, 
You are to say, I'm not listening. I don't want to become complicit in, in your sin. If somebody offends you, you need to go to them personally after praying for them and praying for your response. And if they don't repent, it's then that you bring somebody else into it, as the Bible prescribes repeatedly in Scripture, but especially in Genesis 18. So Abraham brings this, this issue before Abimelech. And Abimelech responds to the charge by saying that this is the first he's heard of it. They didn't even know about it. And now Abraham has the, the freedom to enter into this covenant relationship with Abimelech with no pretense, with, with the issues all on the table. In verses 27 and 28, so Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewes of the, of the flock apart. Now this, this same terminology is used in Scripture and other places where a covenant is enacted. They cut a covenant. Now this is not the kind of, of unilateral covenant that, that God has made with people in the covenant of grace, but this is a human covenant, a binding agreement between two people. Even though Abraham is the superior and Abimelech the inferior, even though Abraham is inside the covenant and Abimelech is outside the covenant as a foreigner to it, it seems that Abraham has, has sacrificed the sheep and the oxen, but he's set apart seven ewe lambs for Abimelech. When Abimelech asked the meaning of, of these lambs, Abraham said that they would be a witness that Abraham had dug the well, that the well belonged to him. And so this place is therefore named Beersheba, which means well of the seven or well of the oath. The, the word, could, it could be translated either way and, and both are very fitting. Well of the seven, of the seven lambs or well of the oath that, God, that Abraham and Abimelech had made. So this, this covenant made, Abimelech and Phicol departed. And so uh, Abraham plants a tamarisk tree as a landmark of God's provision and a sign of this covenant. And like he had done before, again we find Abraham obediently worshiping the Lord. There he called on the name of the Lord, El Olam, the everlasting God. The everlasting God had promised an everlasting covenant relationship with Abraham and with his offspring according to his promise. The Lord had overcome threats in chapter 14, foreign threats, domestic threats in chapter 19, internal threats in, in chapters 12 and 20, and now he preserved the promised, and then he preserved the promised line in chapter 20, and now in chapter 21 he provides water and peace. Abraham had discovered that God would indeed fulfill his promises. First his promise of a son, and now the promise of the land. And Abraham had discovered the value of doing the same. Beersheba, the, the place of Abraham's dwelling, is the first land title that Abraham holds in the promised land. It's a foothold in the promised land. The, the name would always remind Israel of the covenant that, Abra, that Abraham had made with Abimelech, allowing him to peacefully settle in the land. It would also be a, a reminder of Israel's legitimate land claims on the day that they were about to enter the land, a claim that they hold today. This is a continuation of the Lord's promise to Abraham and his offspring. God fulfills his promises even to those outside the covenant. And Abraham 
does the same thing. What promises has God given you? He hasn't promised you an earthly son. He's promised you his eternal son. He hasn't promised you an, uh, an earthly land. He has promised you an eternal kingdom. God has kept his promises to you. He will continue to keep his promises to you. Are you keeping your promises to him? Are you keeping your promises to others? Sadly, we have to acknowledge that we don't. That we've kept none of our promises to the extent that God calls us to keep them. But there is forgiveness even for promise breakers like you and me because God always keeps His promises. God has promised that he would not just send his son into the world, but that his son would live a righteous life and die a sinner's death. That he would die in our place and that he would credit his righteousness, the son's righteousness to us so that we could be called the children of God. And there's also promised obedience because God has kept those promises. God has promised to sanctify you. Romans 8.29 For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, so your keeping your promises to others is part of God's keeping his promises to you. You will, by God's grace and for his glory, grow. If you're truly in Christ, you will grow in your ability to keep your promises to God and your promises to others. You will grow in the fulfillment of the, the great commandment that you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you will love your neighbor as yourself. Not, be, not as a way to earn your salvation, but as one who has been granted salvation entirely by God's grace. Friends, God will keep his promises to you. God always does what he says. Think about, as I'm preparing for this, I was thinking of, of Jason Hofer's um, song, Two Trees. And the refrain is, is just as he said. He's, Jesus rose from the grave, just as he said. The weight of the world forsaken, crushed for the sins of the world, just as he said. 39 times he felt the crack of, human, of mankind for the sins of the world, just as he said. Not a bone was broken, just as he said. The sign of Jonah for mankind, just as he said. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise again, just as he said. God keeps his promises. You can be confident that no matter what you face in life, you go into it with a sovereign God who loves you and has proven his love for you by sending his son to die for his sins. He does not leave you alone. He has promised he will never leave you nor forsake you. 
There is no circumstance that you face in which you go into alone. By God's grace, call out on him, on this faithful God who always keeps his promises, asking him, beseeching him to help you to keep your promises to him and to others for the glory of his name. Let's pray together. Faithful God, we acknowledge that, Lord, so often we operate in faithlessness. But Lord, you are ever faithful because you cannot deny yourself. We thank you that all your promises to us in Christ are yes and amen. Lord, we thank you that, that, that we can trust that though we waver, though we stumble and fall, yet, Lord, you are faithful to, to pick us up, to wash us clean. Lord, we thank you that though we are all sinful, you have promised that when we confess our sins, Lord, you are faithful and just, not just to forgive us our sins, but also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We pray that you would do that in us today by your grace and for your glory. Amen.